Hello and welcome to the Baby Giants Investing Podcast. Join us as we chat about the weird and wild world of small cap investing, all while searching for the precious few fast-growing businesses that have a shot at becoming industry giants. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Baby Giants Investing Podcast. My name is Matt Just, and joining me today is Claude. How are you going, Claude? Well, thanks, Matt. Good to be here. Excellent. We've got, uh, got plenty to cover. There's uh, been quite a few quarterly reports out from the companies that do quarterly reports in Australia, so we'll get through a few of those. Rapid fire. Yeah, rapid fire. We'll do a rapid fire session on a few of those. I should start off with some good news. I'm trying to keep some good news flowing. So one bit of good news I saw this week was uh, the first shipment of grain out of Ukraine has uh, made it successfully out due to this agreement to get some grain out, made its way to Turkey. So it's unfortunately a very small start to what is trying to address a big problem. But I guess that's, uh, that's quite a, a ray of light in the kind of food crisis that's uh, hitting a lot of the world at the moment. And we yeah, didn't have too much else, to be honest. There's <laughs> not too Racking much. Racking our brains for good news every day. Like, yeah. I mean, the good news is we live in Australia, right? And yeah. you know, we get to spend time with friends and family. And, and I hope you're all healthy as well. Right now, I'm not sick. So that's always a massive mm-hmm. win. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, jumping into one th- something that came up last week and I guess came kind of true, I guess, is what us, you know, we recorded last week before, before the results of US GDP. And I think I kind of mentioned there that I thought. GDP would be negative, it wouldn't be declared a recession, and that a lot of people would complain about that, that they'd kind of move the goalposts. Um, so I thought it was just worth touching on it again just to unpack what I was talking about there because it's. I used to think a recession is defined as two negative quarters of GDP in a row, and I have said that many times before and I guess learned a few months ago that that was incorrect. It is commonly like used around the world, but it's not how recessions are defined in the US. The, there's a National Bureau of Economic Research that defines what a recession is, and it's a broad and broad and deep downturn across the economy. So it's kind of subjective. But I guess the greatest example of why it's not two sequential quarters is 2001 was a recession, and there was never two quarters of sequential quarters of negative GDP growth. We had like they had a negative GDP quarter, then growth, and then negative, but it still got declared a recession because there was such a, a general downturn. So I think a lot of people latched onto it as like another sign of authorities changing the rules and you can't trust anyone, but it actually seemed pretty legitimate to me. Um that that was yeah, that's how it that's how it's always been. And I think it's kind of fair to to say that it's not a recession at the moment. If you read any of the transcripts of what's going on in the US, there is still you know, a booming consumer, even though they are fearful, they're still spending a lot. A lot of sectors are still going really strongly. You know, that could all change and there are some early signs of, of that changing. But yeah, basically, I think it's fair enough and probably not a reason to have any conspiracy theory against authorities on that one. But but do you think it will be a recession anyway, even by this other definition that we're less familiar with? I'd say I wouldn't like if let's say I think the way to frame it is what's already happened I don't think is a recession in itself. So if we grew from here, I don't think most people would think they'd live through a recession. I think that'd be accurate and basically I don't think it would be. But what happens from here? So that you know we talked before leading indicators of housing, housing kind of is a business cycle, then durable goods. Those two things together are both were both pretty bad in the second quarter. So if that keeps going third and fourth you know, a recession is pretty likely. So I guess my base case is a recession over the next 12 to 18 months is, is fairly likely in the US. It's just, I've, it could could be avoided, like we're not there yet, but 
the question then is like how mild or severe is it, et cetera. I'd say like the, the range of probabilities skews towards recession in the US if you look at things like inverted yield curve, et cetera. I'm not sure what your thoughts are. I, I yeah, nothing's nothing super's changed in the last couple of weeks in terms of my view. It's sort of similar similar in the sense that I think it's more likely than not that there will be a more severe downturn over the next year to eighteen months, basically. But who knows how severe and, you know, right now it seems like markets are sort of rallying because they're like, well, oh, I think, are we still on this logic? It's more severe. So that means interest rates won't go up as much. So then <laughs> put the stocks up because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. It makes me quite uncomfortable. Yeah, but that yeah, seems to be where we are. You're exactly right. So the, the rates, if you look at what the market rates kind of are implied, they're basically expecting rates to rise this year and then start falling next year, which means they're expecting a recession or at least a sharp drop in activity next year and the Fed having to cut rates which obviously the Fed's not saying they're going to do that yet, but that's basically saying a recession next year in the but US. But it seems like the market... Up. Market's liking that because they want lower rates, but you have to, yeah, I think that's the that's the tightrope where... But um, has the market considered that actually the earnings of the companies might also go down? I guess that's where we're at, right? I think it's, that's spot on. Like, the, the, yeah, the earnings haven't been revised down really very much so far. That's starting to happen now. That's the thing, thing to watch. If you think through... This guy, Erica, I've shouted out before. Um, maybe we'll get him on the pod at some stage. But he talks through four steps in a typical recession. So housing goes, then durable goods, then profit margins, which is basically what we're talking about, earnings, and then unemployment spikes. So, you know, that's the next one to watch, basically. That's the next domino that could or could not fall. And just keep an eye on that. It'll be an interesting situation. I wonder what will happen if we do have those dominoes, but then unemployment as defined, that is somebody seeking work, um, not being able to find it. I wonder if that will stay lower this time because I know I've said this before and I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, but I still think that the bigger analysis is missing something that's going on now, which is we're having a lot of people having sickness and either long COVID or COVID plus we got this extra big hit of all the other random respiratory diseases that have been stamped down for a couple of years so I wonder what effect it is having in terms of the workforce in people just being out of the workforce for whatever reason and if that then changes the unemployment numbers. and But does it matter, say, if the unemployment number is low but actually the reality is there's still the, a heightened number of people not working or fewer people working, mm. does that just actually play out like a recession anyway even while you've got a lower unemployment, I wonder? Yeah, I mean, you'd think that should in some ways keep it more mild. I guess it depends how bad the labor it, side is. Yeah. It should keep the availability of work for those people who want it exactly. higher, which means that if people really need to sort of, if they find themselves in a struggle and the thing that they need to get out of it right now is just a job, they're more mm. likely to be able to find that. I mean, there's a lot about COVID that messes up trying to think where you are in the cycle as well, because, you know, we've had this collapse of durable goods, which means like home appliances and cars. But that's also because that's a lot of what people bought during COVID. And, right? it, so and it expect- lasts longer as well, right? Like when you've got a TV that's one year old or two years old max, then yeah. well, what, that's so not what you want to buy. And if we all rushed out and bought new TVs and something for our backyard and all of those kind of things at the same time, then we've all got them now. Yeah, 100%. So, like, normally that's a real good, a very good recession indicator because it's like coming at the top of this cycle. But it was kind of forced upon us because we switched away from services. So, I guess you could see services pick up slack more than usual, is what I'm, what I'm saying there. Actually, we didn't prepare this, so I'm sorry if I'm putting you on the spot. But I wonder if you have any comment about, uh, I guess, whether tra- travel is bouncing back as people thought, because that's an interesting one. On the one hand, you had all of these 
you know, online retailers booming. But at the same time, the travel stocks really quite quickly after the recession jumped back up as well and started pricing in that recovery. And then the share price has barely moved when the recovery has supposedly, I think, people, it's happened. But the other thing is that I guess hasn't emerged, as far as I'm aware, I'm open to being corrected on this, there hasn't been some sort of like revenge travel thing where it's gone and both bursted way past where it used to be, um, which I think back in a couple of years ago, some people, I believe, were actually telling the story that, well, we won't have traveled for two years, so there's going to be double as much there. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we are seeing that. I think you saw some, there was some like, but it never it never burst through where we were before, right? Like it got back to close to pre-COVID. Yeah. There was a sense of buildup. But I think the other interesting thing, one is like, you know, consumers are more scared. Maybe that's part of it. But I also think there's a big travel supply issue. So I'm just dealing this personally with my wife trying to um, arrange flights back from Europe. And there basically literally been no seats available on any airline to change dates. And, you know, all the same problems we have in supply chain are still flowing through. Like it just takes years to rebuild. The schedules are so intricate with planes, how like finely tuned they were before COVID. That plus labor issues and Mm. COVID illness yeah which affects like the baggage handling at an airport or exactly. whatever it may be and spread yeah. super easily and yeah so those things i think there's a there's a travel supply limit that's kind of limiting the industry um at least yeah speaking to someone at flight center it was literally the worst they'd ever seen like way worse than a christmas period and it's just like you know august <laughs> yeah right okay that makes a lot of sense so it is we are in this weird sort of through the looking glass world now where we're having this economic situation that is far more characterized by supply shortages than probably certainly we, we, we've seen in my lifetime it wasn't the I same think as the so GFC. i think that that's what the bigger the hardest part of this is right because to me like inflation is essentially when you have too much more demand than you have supply basically that can come from printing money and giving it to people however you get there and so you know the fed's only move is to lower demand the problem is that if supply is just low and falling or we can't get supply up you have to lo- lower demand quite a lot to get there um, and then the kind of double concern is if by lowering demand, you also lower supply at the same time because there's less investment and whatever else. But yeah, I feel like we're still in the supply constrained world. And I think the labor point you made as well, I think sick people leaving, I think there's also just baby boomers retiring. There's like just a which you know, exactly. drawdown. And perhaps this isn't something we see in private markets as much, but anecdotally, and I think statistically, we're seeing it in a lot of the public sectors that really help the world go around, schools nursing, hospitals, mm. aged mm. care, a lot of people that might be 55 and they're working just because I guess you do if they also own their own house and have savings now. I guess the attraction of bringing forward that retirement by a few yeah, years exactly. is huge for them. They're like, mm. wow, you know, actually two two more years in this job I don't need to do anymore yeah. and I'm not going to and I'm not getting paid the risk money that I that I should for for getting sick four times a year if I do it. Yeah, pretty much. I think that's spot on. I think a lot have been working past retirement, you know, and just sort of decided this is the time to hang up the boots. And um, yeah, trucking, a whole lot of range of industries are having this, these shortage problems. We'll, we must talk about that sometime, but that, that one caught me out. The, the trucking thing, you know, that's the piece of that puzzle that I miss. We'll, we'll open that can of turn, worm some of it. Yeah. yeah, sounds good. Okay, so maybe let's just jump into some quarterly sieves and rapid fire. Yeah, do you want to just shoot off maybe like a, a minute on each one, a minute or two on each one for a couple of, a couple of companies that caught you, right? So, of course, I'd love to. Uh, this is just a random sample of the many quarterlies we've looked at or I've looked at over the last few weeks. 
Uh, one I thought I would start with is MedAdvisor, just because I've had on my to-do list to, to write these guys up for their quarterly, because not only are they doing a quarterly, but they also did a quarterly and a capital raising and an acquisition of a company called Guildlink. Now, I'm just going to focus on the quarterly for now, because this is the rapid fire quarterly session. Yeah. And the numbers didn't look great for me. So in the last quarter, 15.4 million receipts from customers, net cash operating cash outflow of 3.6 million and then if we look for the full year we've got almost 96 uh, sorry almost 76 million in receipts from customers pretty much break even at the operating cash flow level a little bit negative once you include fairly modest capex and so you could say that at a cash flow level for the full year they were about break even however i don't find that particularly heartening given that they have so much receipts from customers. Mm. So usually I would expect a company that has a decent quality business to be able to be frequent cash flow positive by the time they've got 76 million running through. And look, another acquisition, they've grown a lot by acquisition in the past. There is, in my opinion, a good business in there. So the plus one software as a service thing that serves pharmacies, I think that that's good. And look, the Guildlink thing is very interesting because it strengthens, unlike their other, their last previous acquisition, in my view, this Guildlink acquisition makes more strategic sense because it focuses in on that uh, software market where they're serving uh, pharmacists. Yeah, their, their last acquisition. So uh, maybe just a very quick, their medical adherence um, management, right? And they acquired a business which was like paper-based. So basically making sure people take their medication and you jump in at any point, Claude. But, and they'd acquired one which was kind of traditional method using, you know, mail outs and paper and had tr- converting that to digital in the US. That was kind of the previous acquisition before this one. Is that right? Uh, something like that. I'm not completely acl- across Ad Harris, but all I can tell you is that watching the the numbers it didn't <laughs> necessarily make sense i didn't think it was a great acquisition the share price has not responded well i thought that it felt like a little bit of empire building it was a big bite for med advisor at the time and yeah the the high quality business part of it is the more software digital the app thing that's mm. always what has attracted me to it but it's never been the whole company so even even then with the app, the way part of how they built the app, they don't just have the app. They also have people that are part of their med, um, med advisor system who they only have the, the phone numbers for. So it's just text messages. So they have a few kind of in their technology st- stack. It's easy to focus on the best part of it, which is the highest quality part of it. But that's not necessarily the whole business where the money's coming from. So I like, it's an interesting one. There's a really, there's a gem of a business in there. I think it's a story of diversification personally. Look, they're getting a bit of a, a leadership mix up now. There might be a new journey for them. They've always there's always been a few uh, negatives about that. I don't want to do the whole company now, but suffice it to say, because there is a decent quality business in there, it's one I like to keep an eye on. Mm. And you know, it has come down a long way. So just and also to that break even ish level, which is always interesting. It could turn out to be an inflection point. Not saying it will be. Yep, I think you nailed it there. Where, where the money's coming from and where the cash is going to? <laughs> Probably the two questions there. Yeah, so next on the lift is another one which you can imagine that I'm always been interested in because it does organic or sort of recycled or compostable rather plastic, which is Secos. And so that's mm. been the the tailwind, if you like, that these guys have been trying to grab onto is, you know, the move to having more compostable plastic. Look, compostable plastic's not perfect. 
I think oftentimes it's not disposed of in a way that that means that it breaks down in the desired fashion. But however, I you know you it's hard to argue it's not at least better than non-compostable. What's the problem with how it's disposed of? Is that if it's just chucked into a general tip, it doesn't really matter? Or? Yeah, I think, look, I think if you just put it in landfill, you don't really get any advantage. It's supposed to be composted under the the warmth conditions and the necessary conditions to break it down. And in which case, it still takes a while to break down, but it does break down. So mm-hmm. look, but even I imagine in landfill, it probably doesn't last as long as the normal plastic. So I'd still consider it a positive. Anyway, look, the last quarter, they were fine in the in that they managed operating cash flow positive. But the story here is, look, it's exactly what Buffett said, don't invest in really, because it's not capital light, right? It's capital intensive. They've got their factories. If they want to expand production, they need to go and spend ahead of that to build up the factory. And then if, you know, there's a delay with one of their customers, which is essentially kind of what happened, the customer wanted to rejig their offering a little bit. So then that that ordering stops for a little while. So you have revenue kind of not going up, but you've got to spend and, and you've got to build up for your next level of getting bigger. So it's a cash outflow situation. So even though these guys have sort of been profitable in the past, the actual story for, for this year is not so positive in terms of cash flow. And we're looking at 6 million free cash flow burn. That's including the 4 million in negative operating cash flow of 31 or 32 million in receipts. So again, still you're still not so strong, even at 32 million in receipts, that it can reliably break even even. Mm. Uh, but having said that, will these guys be loss making forever? I suspect not. They do have a history of sort of bursting into profit before. And so I find them interesting Again, nothing inspiring about these results, but definitely one I keep an eye on. And again, you know, the, the, the price is down. It, who knows what's going to happen? Sometimes it, these are real businesses, right? They have real customers. They have a real offering. And in these guys' case, you know, there's at least an argument that history will be on their side in that their particular offering is probably better than the status quo. Yeah, and one thing that's interesting, the status quo, um, plastics are basically... It's kind of made from a waste product of oil refining, right? So it's somewhat disruptive to have something that is, it would use a completely different value chain, I guess, is my understanding to create a bioplastic than the existing infrastructure. So I guess it could be an area where I'm not saying they're there yet, but it could be an area where a new player develops a system that's kind of hard for an incumbent to cross over to do to a degree, although these incumbents are huge, they would have to duplicate some infrastructure to do it, which is one nice thing, I guess. Yeah, and and look, ultimately, I think I'm pretty sure that we use the doggy bags that come from this company, mm-hmm. and it's being driven by the fact that actually, the even though it's more expensive and in a percentage term to make the compostable plastic, the difference in the end product is so low. Mm. So for the actual consumer, the extra price they have to say for feel good compostable yeah. is very low because it's a few cents a bag. Because who cares? Like yeah, yeah exactly. So. It's actually one of those situations where this is arguably being driven by the fact that just people want to care a little bit and they're mm. happy to pay a, a couple of cents just to think that the plastic that they're putting out there is not going to end up in the Pacific Ocean or something. I don't know. Still, I'm always going to follow these little ones. These kind of stories is why I got into investing. Even if I don't always think they're a great investment, I'm still interested in following. Excellent. Yeah, what what else? One, one I think you'd mentioned was Anserata. And Serata, yeah. So this is another one. Again, I don't own this. I think I have owned in the past. You can find stuff I've written about this in the past on the website. 
Now, these guys are interesting because I guess you'd call them a more mature software business than most of what we see. And in the last quarter, they did $13.3 million in receipts, operating cash flow positive of $3.2 million. Now, these guys are a little bit lumpy from quarter to quarter, so don't base it on that necessarily. However, even for the full year, we have a similar sort of picture, $12.2 million operating cash flow. Subtract from that $6 million of acquiring for, uh, entities, You've got some expenditure on non-current assets. I'll just lump that with the intellectual property spend, which would give us cash burn on CapEx, excluding the acquisition of about $6 million, so probably about $6 million free cash flow for the year. One of the things that's worth noticing about Ansarada is that they try and sort of sell this software as a software as a service kind of offering, but their core offering, it is all about companies doing deals or doing an acquisition or an M&A or a takeover or stuff like that. So it's deal room software, which allows various parties to control who has access to what in the process of due diligence, among other things. They have some boardroom software as well. That doesn't necessarily lend itself perfectly to a recurring subscription that you're going to stick with for 10 years because you may mm. just need it for a specific purpose. Yeah. So it's basically so because it's M&A related software, you might just use it for the M&A deal you're doing. That's the, da- the downside of it potentially, right? You're not going to keep using it after that. Some people do if you're like business is doing in deals, yeah. but yeah. So for some people, it'll, it'll churn off. One thing they had, they'd never, I have to make sure I'm reading, saying that this is still correct, but they hadn't really disclosed too much of their um, their burn rate last time, or their churn rate last time that I was looking. Um, I'm not sure if you'd seen that now, but it, it was something that was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I found that there could be more data around around how much people actually churn, which is kind of common when you have a relatively high churn rate. Yeah, right. And look, the thing is, it's very easy for people not to realize how important the churn rate is and the retention is for business quality. It makes a huge difference in the economics of your business if people stick around for years versus if no, the normal thing is they stick around for six months, eight months or a year tops. It looks like a really strong quarter um, and, you know, rounding out a strong year, cash flow positive. I guess one other thought is whether this is something that this is kind of like the best moment for in a sense, where there had been a lot of M&A deals being done. And uh, maybe that provides more of an incentive to, you know, just keep using it, keep retaining or just, to, you know, sign up new people versus, you know, a cold period in the market where there aren't many M&A deals happening, which could happen in future. So I guess just one thing I'd keep in mind is whether this is kind of a golden period or if this is, you know, unlike other um, subscription products that we see that should typically just keep keep going up to the right at different speeds. Yeah, I think it's going to be more, it's going to be more up and down. I mean, they are, the numbers do look good. To be quite honest, they are increasing customer numbers. You know, the free cash flows there, the revenues coming in. But when I first looked at this a couple of years ago, the theory always would be that these guys sh- should have some strength after th- we sort of come out of the initial COVID shock. And mm-hmm. I think we are seeing a lot of MA at the moment relative to normal. And that could be lo- wrong, but you know, just anecdotally. And so, yeah, this is probably a good period for them. I wouldn't necessarily, that's not me saying, oh, they've peaked and next year is going to be bad though. In fact, yeah. the company says that they've got a positive outlook for FY23 and Q1 is underpinned by contracted level revenue and solid pipeline. So they've got deferred contracted revenue of almost $17 million at the end of Q4 with most of that expected to be recognized over the next 12 months. So that implies to me that you know, they're feeling positive and it should be a relatively good uh, year coming up, but that 
you know, it's just an interesting company to follow. I just don't have a compelling view on it either way at the present mm-hmm. time. And, yeah. you know, the, the fact that they've got 17 million pre-contracted doesn't guarantee anything given, you know, in the last year they did receipts from customers of 52 million. So we'll have to wait and see what happens with that. Nice. Uh, maybe one last rapid fire. Do you want to do genetic signatures? Yes. Okay. So this is probably my favorite of the rapid fire ones. And I'm definitely going to write an article about that, these soon. I do own shares in this one. Uh, that's not like recommendation, just disclosing that. So what these guys do is they do a kind of PCR testing, which arguably is better than the predominant kind because it can handle variants more easily. It can test for more things in a single sort of sample. Mm-hmm. And these guys caught my attention and the market's attention because they're supplying a lot of the COVID testing, PCR testing for Australia. However, obviously, that's come off quite a way. And the most recent quarter was an interesting and important one because really, if you think about it, the period month, the period April, May, June this year is more representative of where we are going forward, right? So Mm -hmm. not so much PCR testing anymore. The first quarter, sorry, the quarter that had January, February, March still had that massive Christmas boom, if you recall. We had absolutely crazy amount of testing was just coming off then. So that was quite good for them. Their their quarterly receipts from customer has come down a long way, as you'd expect. So they peaked in Q1 this year, which was, um, you know, ending in September last year. And that was 12.4 million receipts from customers. This quarter was down to 4.9 million receipts from customers. So low ebb for them. And really the story here is, now look, the good news is in this low ebb customer, and this is what I was personally really pleased about as a shareholder, is they only had 5 million receipts from customers and their net cash operating outflow was less than 200K. So an operating cash flow level, they were kind of break even, even in what I would say is, you know, a worse quarter for them and maybe what it kind of looks like going forward. And there was a little bit of expenditure in plant property equipment, so they were cash burning. But the good thing is they've made hay while the sun shine during the time when they're making money out of selling the COVID tests. So they have almost $37 million of cash on their balance sheet now. So they do actually have quite a strong balance sheet, keeping in mind that this whole company is only worth about $160 million at the current share price. Yeah, that's super strong. Yeah, and and what's more, they've proven their technology works with this COVID test thing and their current goal is to get their enteric test up and running in the USA. Now, as I understand it, the selling point here is that at the moment, a process would happen where you take some stool because this is testing for pathogens or protozoa or whatever it is in your gut, right? The Mm -hmm. stool sample would get put on a little slide, like a smear of it, and then they look it under a microscope and it's it's kind of a slow, not particularly profitable for the pathologist, difficult, like basically one of the processes that is not so attractive for the pathologist. Supposedly, their solution would allow, and I don't know this for sure, this is just what the CEO said, this solution that they have would allow the... Or doctors to order, you know, a PCR test for a bunch of things they might want to check for. 
that's easier and faster and better for the labs who can also now make money off the process. So with luck, when they launch it, the labs will be like, look, this is a great new replacement for some of these uh, poo smear tests. And as a result, they'll say out to the doctors, hey, you got to try this test when you're testing for these things if it suits your purposes. And then they hope to get a whole bunch of market share there. So you could call it an audacious plan. Mm. And usually, honestly, before COVID, if I read this plan, I'd be like, all right, let's wait and see. The only reason that I'm perhaps overly interested in it, but the only reason I find it compelling is because they proved this track record. They got the COVID tests out there. They made a, a heap of revenue. They banked that. And now they're going to go with their, this other thing, which they say has been held up through the FDA through the whole COVID period. Mm. So I call it, it makes sense in my mind, but it's still a speculative stock. Yeah, I guess the speculation is, can as you, you've laid it out pretty well, can they translate the success and recognition they got from COVID into something that will be, you know, more persistent? Hopefully COVID isn't here in five years' time too much. Um, but even so, whatever happens, this level of COVID testing that they benefited from in Australia was, it's not going to come back because yeah. at that time, Australia was like, for a million different, not a million, but for a bunch of different purposes, you needed to go and get a PCR test and it wasn't enough yeah. to do a rat test. And that's what's changed. And I don't think that's ever going to come back. Mm. But the only thing that I got out of that in the longer term thing is like, wow, actually, these guys are the real deal. Like I looked at these before COVID and I was like, sounds super speculative. Good luck with your new like tech that's going to take over testing and blah, blah, blah. Then a couple yeah. of years later, they're like $12 million in a quarter selling these tests. And I'm like, oh, you actually do have clearly some talent yeah. so that's what caught my eye but that's why i'm trying to get you to tell me why i'm wrong and stuff as well <laughs> i mean i guess the question is you know if it doesn't if it doesn't deliver from here it's still like you still need to get that win in the u.s and i think that's probably the hardest question maybe one of our listeners who is you know working in pathology or, or something could yes could please tell us what difference does this technology make so essentially i understand they can test multiple kind of targets at once because their test it's a genetic test and because it's only looking at three of the four DNA pairs, that allows yeah, them to still right. identify viruses, but at a lower kind of cost of, of time and you know sampling and everything else. If anyone's familiar with 3Base and can say, yeah, our lab started using it and it's way better. Um, the, the challenge is that there's a lot That's of That's what I'd like to so, hear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also, still tell us if your lab started using it and it's not worth it. <laughs> The challenge with labs is there's a lot of lock-in, right? Like it, it can't be five or ten percent better. I think it needs to be a lot better to be able to win win over, you know, just the incumbency of the other providers. Mm. Um, and it, this might be so that I think that's one to understand better is you know how much better or, or worse is this? Uh, yeah, I think the selling point is that this with this enteric test they can replace this other process, with, at least in some instances, which was a massive pain point for the labs. That's how it's been explained to me. But yeah, th- we're talking. Even though the company itself is a proven revenue-generating company, it's still the thesis is speculative because we're saying what's going to happen is we're going to put this product in front of people on the other side of the world and they're going to be like, yes, been waiting for this product. Let's roll it out. And that's yeah. the speculation. Yep, I think spot on. One other one which I've uh, taken a bit of a look at and I guess caught my eye a bit before the quarterly report, so I think the quarterly was was fairly strong, is a company called Phineos. Um, so Phineos is a software provider and moving towards being a SaaS software provider for the insurance industry. So anyone who's, you know, familiar with what I like, um, a, a, you know, vertical enterprise software, particularly one transitioning to 
recurring revenue from one-time revenue is generally quite an area that I, I like to find. They can be incredibly sticky products. Um, once you kind of get your foot in the door, you can expand from there. Uh, Phineas has a really long history. It's got a founder that owns uh, a lot of shares still, has been going for many years, I think over you know, over 20 years in, in total. And the business has kind of grown to be more software focused over time. It was originally more consultancy focused. Their product has a lot of traction and success. So they're, uh, you know, European business, but listed in Australia. You know, the official reason is because they have a lot of traction here, which is true. They have the largest um, government insurance program in New Zealand, which is huge, called ACC, and a very large market share with Australian insurers. Maybe the reason also is that capital markets here in Australia were willing to put a higher multiple on it, as often happens when people list here. But there's so there's a lot to a lot that I like about it. I think some of the th- caution areas for me, it is it has a very high services component. So that's something that that sticks out to you once you you know peel back the peel back the onion, so to speak. So there's a lot of revenue that they come comes from training and integration, and they don't they say, they're signaling that that will stick around, which isn't how most SaaS you know businesses run. Typically, you see that start to fall away, and the product's very easy to use, and you don't need that kind of integration. I think they're integrating with big legacy systems, and so that's just always always going to be there. Yeah. So just on that point. One of the things, and I know you're thinking this, but I just want to say it, is that one of the things that can be an external clue to how good software is, is how big is the integration and imp- implementation piece. So, this is just anecdotal and going from my experience of looking at pretty much every software company that's been listed on the ASX for the last 10 years, is some of the ones that generally have done the best, it's an easier, faster implementation process. And when you ask around you find out when you're researching a company, you often find out, oh, actually, this is a slow implementation process. Oh, it's inexpensive integration. It takes a lot of time. It's difficult to roll out. And just anecdotally, my sample size isn't huge. Some of those companies with the slower, harder integration tend to do worse. They have less free cash flow flowing off. They find it harder to grow easily. They're more prone to basically missing guidance because they're saying, oh, we thought this was going to happen in this period, but now it's gotten pushed back because the implementation or integration got too slow. This is, by the way, a challenge for all software companies. Even the best have a situation where sometimes it's not their fault and they're getting integrated as part of a bigger change and, and somebody else is holding it up. That does happen. I'm not saying that every time there's a delay, it's a bad sign. But I do think that I prefer to find companies that have a good reputation for fast, easy implementation integration can be a little signal that the software is of good quality. I think there's two things there. So one is if you have two companies, like if there was another insurance software company and theirs was easier to integrate, that that alone could be a sign of better quality. But it can also be that the whole industry can be tough and tougher. So, you know, Hanson's one that um, integrates with billing software and just the way that, that it's structured it's designed to work with a lot of different, you know, cumbersome systems. It's kind of integrating with other legacy stuff. That probably always has to have more integration work than something yeah. else like Zero. And that may be the case, but I guess my point is sometimes it could just be look, this whole niche is more difficult because integrations are more difficult. Yeah. And what happens then, it's, it slows growth down, right? So it, 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 the whole niche can't grow. You can't grow explosively as fast because you need people to do all the manual work. It means that your gross margins struggle to be as high because you have to 
basically do more bespoke work. The you know the beauty of software that we say is it's um, infinitely replicable at zero marginal cost, and this kind of mm. breaks that a bit because it's not true. infinitely replicable. Yeah, because- that's a better way to think of it than what I was saying. Yeah, but no, I agree completely. So I think that that's the challenge. I don't think it's an easy one for them to solve, although maybe, I mean, part of it is, you know, if you do fully move to SaaS, but I think a lot of this is that um, kind of private SaaS where you it's basically the same software, you just happen to be operating it in a private cloud for the company. That's not what we want. When we, when we talk about SaaS, what we want ideally is multi-tenant SaaS. So everyone's using the exact same product. If you improve something for, you know, customer A, that improves it for everyone. And that's a really strong position to be and it means the competitive position is way stronger everything about it's better um, as a business model but it's just hard to do that some industries you know it's not easy to do that everywhere and it takes years and decades to get that across the line yeah so i think that i think you raised a really good point with that one claude i think the um the company has been you know still burning quite a bit you could ask why hasn't it been profitable after so much time i think they're now signaling they're going to get through to cash flow break even this quarter was fairly strong although we don't know how much of that is just you know the timing of different receipts oh yeah and also look i agree that the operating cash flow is looking decent there but they do have a fair bit of spend on investing cash flow which i assume Mm. is mostly investing in the product Mm -hmm. and you just got to look obviously you know this matt but one does have to be a little bit careful if you get this huge range with software companies some have run barely anything through capitalized software development so you look at their operating cash flow that's pretty much it they might have a little bit of plant equipment for computers and stuff like that but mostly it's just they're expensing their software development you have others that will capitalize that put that as an asset on the balance sheet that will make their profit and loss look better it'll also make their uh, operating cash flow look better but that's why you look at free cash flow as well because that is important but it's really fascinating with this one because it's um it's kind of a strategic question as well. So they've got this product that is resonating around claims. So, you know, managing when an insurance customer makes a makes a claim and another one around workforce absence. And that's basically since IPO, I think all the deals they've had have been selling those products over the last couple of years. But they also, you know, big push all their R&D or a lot of their R&D is going into building a full suite product that could go in and kind of replace everything that an insurance company does. And they, you know, I think they've done that for at least one customer. They, they say we've got at least one customer for every product. So they probably built that for someone and trying to like repurpose or create that. But that's a lot of, that's a big bet. And that, I mean, you know, if that pays off, then that's what you'd expect from like a founder-led company, right? Where he's willing to pour all this money into R&D. And that would be potentially a mad level up for the company as well, right? Exactly. That could mean that everything accelerates. It could just say competitive positions much, much stronger if you're the system of record and everything else. But on the flip side of, you know, that, that, that's one to watch because if you don't get that um, traction, then it means that you're burning a lot of cash and, you know, the shareholders don't see those cash flows you could otherwise be generating. So any kind of verdict on, on whether you think that will happen? How, how, how are you thinking about this sort of push? Yeah, I think it's one you can probably observe by um, tracking whether it makes some sales. Like I'm sure it'll en- mm. enhance it pretty well if it makes some of these full yeah. suite sales. And Sometimes you can just to watch for. jump on after the first or second sale and mm. that can be a good time sometimes because, you know, you've at least got a couple and so maybe there'll just be more. Like what are the chances it finishes at two? I don't know yeah. if that logic is sound, but it's what, something I carry in my head. Uh, I completely like watching for traction rather than just hoping or predicting it. There's much you miss some of the gain typically when you actually see the results. Exactly, and so this is something with like genetic signatures. I'm like, oh, should I just be waiting for that first 
Do you know mm. what I mean? It might actually be a wiser move to actually just sit there and watch and be patient mm. and then wait and see what do they get the sales. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's fair. Yeah, so that's those are probably the main things that I was watching, but I think it's I think it's an interesting one and one that doesn't get much attention here. I think it's kind of fallen off the radar because it you know hasn't hasn't been performing as well recently. So it went yeah. on a big share price run, didn't it? And I owned it for a little bit as well, just because it had that sort of last year seems so long away away now. But you know, all the market cared about was you know is your recurring revenue going up, and if mm-hmm. it is, then and you've got cash in the balance sheet, then no one's really worrying about cash burn. Of course, things have changed mm. a lot in the last six I, months. Yeah, and I think this is one you really need to kind of value and look at the cash flows because it is just so different from other SaaS businesses in the sense there's so much services, there's so much investment of R&D. It's not one that you can I just put a multiple on, I think, very yeah, easily. Yeah, I right? agree. Like, Look, I wanted it to be better than it, it, better quality business than it turned out to be. And I guess it's just because I look, You've just really discussed everything already, but you've got this situation where there's a lot of cash burn and, and when it's a lot mm-hmm. of money, that can be really hard to turn that ship around. Yeah. Hey, let's jump up to something that's in the news and a bit more big picture, um, which is, you know, we're recording this on, on Wednesday. Who knows what's going to happen by Friday? But um, China versus Taiwan, I guess, has flared up as a geopolitical issue with um, Nancy Pelosi visiting the first speaker of the House of the US to visit in a bit over 20, 20 odd years. And China had been issuing really strong warnings saying, don't go. Pelosi has shown up to go. I just, I think that, you know, we're bottom up investors. It's not going to be driving. We're not macro traders or anything. I think it's worth thinking through some of the just scenarios because, at least for me anyway, I like to think them through. It means that if stuff happens, you have, you kind of have better orientation for it. So you're less caught off guard. Like I think if you were thinking about viruses before COVID happened, or at least um, at least when it, when it did happen, you're probably like aware of it and paying attention. I mean that you're framing things well. Anyway, so I think one, one interesting thing with, um, with Taiwan is just thinking through the range of possible outcomes, I guess, because if you think of, you know, China's size, 1.4 billion people, Taiwan's size, 20 odd million, it's very easy to just think, oh, that would be, you know, instant because China could just click its fingers and invade and, and take over the island. I read a really interesting book on it called The Chi- Chinese Invasion Threat a little while ago. I don't have it with me, so I'm speaking from memory here. I guess my few takeaways from it were it's much harder uh, lift than it might seem. Taiwan's geography means there's only a few landing beaches. Taiwan as a country has basically always inv- existed under the shadow of this. So you could say they're kind of structurally prepared to defend against an invasion much better than anything we could imagine in, you know, in Australia. Um, so here, like a few highlights there. The Air Force is able to launch out of the mountains, m- mountain bunkers that they have um, planes secured in. A lot of military assets are dispersed throughout the country, like just hidden in a garden shed at a school kind of thing so they can fight a guerrilla war. The beaches are not just mined and pillbox, but there's pipelines under the potential landing beaches, which in the event of an invasion would gush oil into the harbour, which would then be set alight. Which is, is so those. wild. <laughs> These are the most hardcore people I've ever heard of. Um, it's pretty extreme, and uh, the other kind of things are that although it's very close, to I China, love Taiwan. It's just, <laughs> no, I've like been there, and it, it really is beautiful. I've, I've never been to a place where I've had such an inability to communicate in their language, and people have been so kind to me. Oh, that was what really yeah. stood out. Like I've speak a few foreign languages, and I've had some brilliant adventures in those countries where I've spoken to people. Obviously, when you speak someone's language, they and and you, they can see you're trying people are much nicer to you. So I'm used to, if I'm having a crack, people being very welcoming and encouraging. Mm-hmm. Taiwan was wild for me just because complete inability, couldn't even try to speak their language, yet they're being so kind. It was amazing. 
That's awesome. And I, I just how it's imp- crazy impressive how Taiwan has developed. So, um, and for anyone not aware, Taiwan um, semiconductors are the leading edge of, of chip making, basically, down to seven nanometers. If you're using, you know, an Apple device, it's bleeding edge, best in the world technology is, is you know, fabricated in Taiwan. So incredibly important, critical industry for the world, aside from, you know, democracy and everything else going on there. Yeah, so you know, incredible that they've been able to do that in, in such a such a rapid period of time and, and modernize so much while having this cloud kind of hanging over their their existence. Um, a couple of other points: the if you were going to invade, it would require obviously a lot of a lot of boats. You kind of need to force all those through these narrow, few available landing beaches. I think that that is um, changes the dynamic a lot because it means if you have twenty million people say defending, um, it's hard to get that many people ashore, you know, via landing boats that are able to come through. It doesn't mean it's impossible and I'm not saying that, but it's just not it's not in any way an easy thing. It's much, much harder than invading Ukraine from Russia's perspective, for instance. Yeah, and, and basically they're prepared for it for quite a while. And I guess the other two things is um, there's kind of a timing window, May to July and October, where there's kind of two seasons where the Taiwan Strait would be you know, more passable where there's not a typhoon season or something that would come through. Um, and I guess the last one is that if there was to be an invasion, you'd probably see at least six months warning because it's just such a huge buildup that would be required in terms of vessels, manpower, etc. I think the most likely option also, one last takeaway was that if China did do something, it would be a naval blockade. There's some concern that could be what's happening now. China's response to Pelosi visiting is to set up all around Taiwan these live fire military exercises if they use that to block off, you know, trade to Taiwan, obviously that would be potentially devastating. We'll, we'll see what how unfolds over the next few days. Perhaps this is just practice for that. But that would be, it seems like the most likely outcome of the first move if China was to, to move on Taiwan. And that sounds like it would be really tough for the world, especially oh, just there's so much to unpack there, not least the supply of chips, right? Because they're manufacturing in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so that you'd have a... Definite chip shortage situation potentially there. Obviously, you've got bigger questions about the world order that is mm-hmm. being currently upset, not upset, but changed for various reasons, yeah. including, of course, Russia. Russia's bringing in this sort of concept now that 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 might is right, I guess, mm-hmm. which has always sort of existed in the background, right? But we've had a fairly good run of larger countries not just saying, hey, I want that country. That's my country. You know, I'll take control of that. We haven't seen that so much, but look, that's how we got two world wars, right? Yep, 100%. So I think that there's a, there's a huge amount of impact. It would have a lot of decisive um, factor on the future of, you know, who controls Asia, I guess. It, it opens up a lot of ability for influence over Japan and South Korea. And I wonder what Japan's thinking looking at all, all this going on as well. Yeah, I think they're clear. They, you know, not stepping out of the official line of the US, which is basically, you know, the US has it in law that they'll help defend Taiwan, but it's all, they have this policy of strategic ambiguity so that they never say whether they will or not, questionable Mm. whether that's the right call. But yeah, and and I guess the other thing, you know, to think back on how that happened, Taiwan is basically the poster child of what I guess the US had hoped would happen in China, which is basically open up your market, modernize, and, you know, Taiwan wasn't a democracy in the you know 70s 80s it became a democracy and now is you know quite a vibrant democracy with a lot of the kind of rights that we would expect you know in other developed countries yeah and i think that's part of the, the reason that the ccp is so it's keen. beautiful as well it has amazing you know wilderness areas for a heavily um, mm-hmm. much more heavily populated island than australia we're used to having so much space here but it's still beautiful there 
Yeah, excellent. I was just going to say to wrap up, it's like it's kind of a counterexample to the CCP, or the, the you know Communist Party that controls China, of what China could be. So I think that's part of why it sticks in the craw so much. But anyway, I won't get into all that. I just think it's one to um, have some thought about. And I guess a, a kind of a broader question, chatting before the pod, I have an idea where you stand on this card, but I think it, there is kind of an ethical question. If you're an Australian or investing in Australia of investing in China in the sense that Australia has very clearly said that if the US is to enter the war on Taiwan's behalf, that Australia would enter as well. And there's kind of bipartisan support for that, that we're kind of allied with the US. If you're investing in China, I think it is something to consider that you could be investing in a country that Australia would be at war with within the next Mm. 30 years. Um, and what that might mean. So, you know, I put it to a friend who thinks a lot. Um, it means, it means you lose your money. Oh, that, yeah, there's that. And I guess well, that's the only you... language that some people mm-hmm. speak. Yeah. I mean, you could have your, basically for an investor, right? If you're thinking about, if you're thinking about what's in the long-term best interests of Australians, et cetera, your, your children, basically, or people's children could be fighting against China, like literally within, I mean, that could happen soon, unfortunately, with this crisis flaring up, but it's something to, something to keep in mind, I guess. Maybe just to, to wrap up, one that has definitely caught our eye, I think, is Live Tiles, which has now announced that it's going private. So it's delisting. The official reason is so that it could be consider listing on the NASDAQ or be bought by a larger company, which I uh, kind of threw my eyebrows up when I saw that as the explanation. But yeah, maybe I, I know that you've, uh, you've tracked this one for a while, Claude, and just to get your thoughts on Live Tiles and what's going on. Yeah, right. So... Basically, LifeTiles is a company that I've followed for a long time because it's software. And when it first listed, it was sort of a little mini microcap and had this software that made Microsoft SharePoint more usable and easier for somebody to sort of create little intranet websites and stuff like that. And it was getting the numbers in the growth in terms of the, the top line growth. So I thought, oh, well, you know, there's a product market fit here this could be interesting. And I think a fair few people did. And it's a very sellable story. But basically what happened over the years is that the company just didn't matter how much, like whatever happened, they were always just spending more money. So at some point in that journey, there was a clue for most people that the shareholders are not going to see a gush of free cash flow from this company ever because what essentially would happen is every dollar plus a whole bunch extra that ever came into the company would go out the door as well. Now, there's a bunch of other red flags with this company that I have written about. Some of them, I've mentioned some of them, and people can literally just start Googling the company and and, and they'll find and they'll those find things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not just my name, they'll find other yeah. things as well. And there's plenty to explore that you could consider, in my opinion, a red flag, but the main thing that I don't think you can really argue about is that this company just had this amazing ability to burn cash, even so many millions of dollars. And when that happens, it's really important for people to remember that it's not just enough to see revenue growth. You need to see a company that at a certain critical mass of revenue is able to make a profit if they want. In the last 12 months, LiveTiles brought in the door $57 million almost of cash, and they had operating cash outflow of 5.8. In the last quarter, $13 million and operating cash outflow of $2.2 million. So these guys are at a pretty substantial scale. So you'd think you could run at cash break even and stop the need for capital raisings. But, you know, historically, it's just been capital raising after capital raising. Look, I think it's one of those funny things is because I actually... Um, 
you know, back in a prior role had recommended this when I sort of thought it was, it looks, you know, like what something I'd like. I realized things weren't working out. And, you know, the final straw for me is when I'm getting bombarded with, when I got advertisement basically for, for this stock on Hot Copper during a capital raising. Yeah. And that didn't last forever. And, you know, by the time I'd finished complaining about it, there was no more advertising on Hot Copper. But that was the final tip off for me that I was like, nah, now's the time I'm out. I, I, don't, I don't want part of this. And honestly, that was, no, that was not the top, but it was a long way from the bottom. That was around 40 cents per share. And so mm. it, felt, it felt like, wow, people are going to think that I'm the one jumping at shadows here. But sometimes there's just this buildup of little things that I'd consider a red flag. And then at some point you got to call it like there's three red flags. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Yeah. And so I think for me, the, the moral of the story is for live tiles, you have to have a list of different things that you consider negatives and that you're taking notes. And then if there are too many negatives, you've got to listen to that eventually. Because if in your head, your subjective way of dealing with it is to be like, Every time there's a bit of a bad thing you notice about a company, you're like, oh, yeah, but, yeah, but. You're always going to find the yeah, but because most companies are always going to be telling a story about how great they are. And mm-hmm. this one was a difficult one because it did actually have quite a large amount of revenue. Usually, the companies that you really need to avoid don't have any revenue at all, and it's just pure story. But these mm-hmm. guys had that on their side. And look, you know, I think that the end of the day is you do need to see cash flow from this company because Microsoft SharePoint is not Microsoft's key core product. And these guys, you know, got a lot of their business by adding on to Microsoft's product. So if you think about the tech stack, it was never ideally positioned there. What do you think about the explanation of the reason to delist or the decision to delist? So they're saying it's in the best interest because of the underperformance of the trading price of the company's shares, low levels of liquidity, and a number of flow-on consequences, um, valuation, capital raising, etc. I think I think I got to bite my tongue, or yeah. or or I'll be asking you to edit stuff out later. Not not favorable view of those explanations. You know, put it this way: you know, if I ever listed a company onto the stock market like my number one goal would be okay this is a massive long journey i hope this company is still listed on this stock market in 50 years and people Mm. are saying man i'm so happy i bought shares in that 50 years ago it's really tough for shareholders because you just get they'd be be trapped right and you'd go from having you know something you can sell every day the stock went down minus 50 percent, and then they have this bad news saying Hey, it's also getting de- delisted now. I got an email in my from somebody saying sell live tiles today, and it's like that is very much closing the gate after the horse is bolted. But also, that's a tough situation to be in. Yeah, it's tough. I, don't, I feel for any um, mum and dad investors who've been in that one for. A long that time is now. a tough one. We all have massive losers, but the don't lose a lesson, I guess. Yep, I think that's great. I think, and as, as you say, keeping a list of um, what you're watching and, and mindful when the thesis breaks, it's always easy to say, but that's a, yeah. You've got to look for the negatives as well as the positives, because if you're only always looking for the positives, then every time you see an ad hoc negative, you'll be like, oh, yeah, but I've got all these positives. And I think that just the simple act of writing it down, right? Like it's yeah. much harder to go back and realize if you just take a note, what are the negatives or the positives? What am I looking for? It's much harder to trick yourself because that's basically what happens. You're faced with this negative emotion of the share price down. They give you an easy answer. I'm not specifically talking about this company, but in general, they give you an easy answer and it's easy to, easy to accept it rather than um, 
Yeah, so from my experience, you know, basically what happened here was when I first looked at it, I'm seeing all the positives and and the hope for the future and the growth and the low market cap at the time because it's mar- it, it did a lot of dilution in the intervening years since t- 2018 and now, right? And when I first, you know, recommended it, the insiders had just subscribed for a bunch of shares at around 18 and a half cents, I want to say. Can't remember. Many years ago now. The point is I had a list of positives and a smaller list of negatives. But then as time goes by, the negatives list kept on growing, but the positive list didn't grow. Yeah, 100%. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's wrap it there. I think we covered quite a range of, uh, range of topics today. If anyone has any thoughts or feedback, particularly as we mentioned, genetic signatures, anyone working at Pathology Lab, any view on it, but anything that we covered or any ideas for something to chat about, drop us an email at babygiantspodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at babygiantspod. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks.